Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. Born in Kansas, Thomas Frank, author of What's the Matter with Kansas, has with great insight revealed the disillusionment of large sections of working people in rural and urban America with the liberal elites that run the Democratic Party. In his recent book, he takes on the contempt that this liberal aristocracy feels towards what they call populism. Here's a quote from the book, The People Know. Opponents of the right should be claiming the high ground of populism, not ceding it to guys like Donald Trump. Indeed, this is so obvious to me that I'm flabbergasted anew every time I see the word abused in this way. How does it help reformers, I wonder, to deliberately devalue the coinage of the American reform tradition. It is my argument that reversing the meaning of populist tells us something important about the people who reversed it. Denunciations of populism, like the ones we hear so frequently nowadays, arise from a long tradition of pessimism about popular sovereignty and democratic participation. And is that pessimism, that tradition of quasi-aristocratic scorn that has allowed the paranoid right to flower so abundantly. That again is from the book, The People Know by Thomas Frank. Thomas is a political analyst, a historian, a journalist. He co-founded and edited the Baffler magazine, and he's written several books, most notably, What's the Matter with Kansas in 2004, and Listen Liberal in 2016. I did a long series of interviews with Thomas about Listen Liberal, and I can attest to the fact that the liberals did not listen. At any rate, his most recent book is The People Know, and I guess that speaks to the same point. Now joining us is Thomas Frank. Thanks for joining us, Thomas. You got it, Paul. It's great to be here. So we're going to divide this interview into three parts. Part one, we're going to talk about the history of populism, and especially in the American context, how did, how did this word begin to be used as, to describe a political movement? Part two, we're going to talk about getting into the heads of these liberal elites and the Trump version of populism, if, if that's even how one wants to use the word. And then part three, we're going to talk about what would a democratic populist movement look like if one imagines what it should be and what it is today. But let's start, let's start with the uh, history. But before we do, talk just a little bit about the title of the book. Uh, what, what was your thinking behind The People Know? So it's a reference to uh, you know, an American classic that's not widely read anymore. Um, it's a long, it's a book length poem by Carl Sandburg called the people. Yes. And Sandburg was, you know, this, they called him in his, in his heyday of the 1920s and 1930s, they called him the poet of the people. And his whole career was about, you know, making uh, poetry out of the language and the experiences of ordinary people. This is a, there's something of a tradition of this in America. So Walt Whitman did the same kind of thing, and there's many others have done it as well. But Sandberg was, in some ways, the uh, best known, the sort of, uh, you know, the uh, what would you say, the the most popular uh, poet who 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 sort of worked in this. Uh, in this particular vein. And he wrote this book in 1936, The People, Yes. It was a populist book in a populist era. I mean, the 1930s were the great period of celebrating ordinary people, uh, you know, uh, folk traditions, uh, you know, painting WPA murals of average working people. 
uh, and also at the same time, you know, a, move, a, a time when the labor movement was growing and taking power and the American government was shifting dramatically to the left. Uh, and none of those things are the case anymore, Mr. Paul J. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, the elites in this country are, are they are uh, fearful of democracy. Uh, they, you know, the, we just came out where, you know, just a few years ago, we had an election in which the Democratic candidate, in other words, the legatee of Franklin Roosevelt, referred to, you know, the, uh, ordinary people as deplorables in, in one of the most shocking, you know, uh, sort of statements of the of the campaign. Now, she that was Hillary, of course, Hillary Clinton. She apologized for it, but the damage was done. And she also, you know, that was that is the mindset of uh, of of, you know, leading liberals nowadays is that there is something wrong with with ordinary people. Uh, I mean, and they say this, by the way, you know, you, your listeners might think that this is just so much rhetoric and so much over. They say this. The first chapter of the book is made up of quotations uh, of of these kind of uh, elite liberals in Washington, D.C., uh, denouncing and, and you know, uh, uh, wringing their hands over ordinary people and how they have abandoned the elites. You know, the, the people are in the grip, they think, of some, you know, grand delusion. They often, when they uh, attacked Bernie Sanders, meaning the Clinton-esque um, and Obama-esque, one should add, uh, section of the leadership of the Democratic Party, they often equated Sanders with a kind of Trump, den yep. denouncing yep. two forms of populism That's right. because it's outside the institutional control of, of them. Yeah, of them and their and their and their Beltway doppelgangers in the Republican Party. Yes, that is exactly right. Their their definition of populism is not, um, of course, is not exact and is not even meant to be exact. I it, so in my definition, which begins you know uh, where it should begin at with the people who coined the term, Bernie Sanders is very much in the populist tradition, uh, and we'll I'm sure we'll talk about him and what happened to him at some point. But Donald Trump is not. Donald Trump is something else. Donald Trump is a classic demagogue, uh, which is another, you know, another interesting sort of thread in American life, the problem of the demagogue. But uh, it's not the same thing as populism. Well, they, they, as you point out in your book, in their minds, because populism just means a politics out of the normal control of institutional two-party politics and quasi-normal two-party politics. I know, I'm not sure the current Republican Party itself falls into that. But they see anything like that, as you just, uh, as you write, as just mob ruled. Yeah. And it's out, it's out of control. It's scary. And these people are defying uh, yes. like normal, the normal historical process. Yes. Now, just so your listeners know, this is not just one or two people here. There's an entire academic discipline now or it's sort of a quasi-discipline, you know how academia is. There's you know these sort of places in between departments, but it's called global populism studies, and it's uh, you know that is their definition of populism is more or less it's it's mob rule. It's uh, you know these it's when the people are out of control and they start following these uh, racist demagogues, uh, would-be authoritarians who want to overthrow rule by rightful elites, and by rightful elites, of course, they mean people like themselves, them and their friends. Yeah, you have a good line in the book. Populism is simply another word for mob rule, a headlong collapse into the tyranny of the majority that our founding fathers so dreaded. Yeah. And that's the whole point of electoral college, 
which is, as you say, rather ironic that people that don't like populism wound up losing to an institution that was there to fight populism. <laughs> oh, I know. So, I mean, it's all, it's, it's riddled with contradictions and, and ironies. Yeah. The, the electoral college. So the founding fathers obviously didn't have the word uh, populism, but they, uh, they did have that fear of the majority. Uh, that, that is like all runs right through the federalist papers and the constitutional convention. Um, Alexander Hamilton uh, famously, well, it's it's actually not clear whether he said it or not. It's it's one of these apocryphal quotes that he said things like it all the time. But the quote itself, he de- he said he never, you know, he 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 denied saying it. And that is, he at one point was in an argument with his arch enemy Thomas Jefferson. He said, uh, "Your people, sir, are a great beast," and uh, that's anti-populism. That's kind of the core doctrine of it that the the people are this uncontrollable. A wild animal. And by the way, there's these great illustrations of that idea in uh, uh, the, it, it, well, I, I say they're great. That's of course, because I'm the one that found them and put them in the book. <laughs> the, <laughs> but if you, if you go to my website, if you go to tcfrank.com, you can look at a lot of them, of these illustrations of the people as a great beast. And with the word populism inscribed on the people, and this is from the 1890s. And it's the same idea today, of course. I've made this point in discussing modern uh, slavery uh, that in, in the context of America and the enslavement of black slaves, black African slaves, but that in England, the enslavement was of the Irish and the Welsh and of and the child labor, which essentially were like child slaves who were white Anglos. Uh, the, um, the idea of dehumanizing the working class, especially the poor working class, as really being subhuman. It's connected to this idea that if those people ever got in charge of or supported the kind of politics that serve them, that's to be feared. Yes. And that is that is one of the themes that runs right through the history of populism is, or I should say of what I call anti-populism, is this fear that when the, you know, if you were to actually succeed with what the populists wanted to do, which is to make a grand appeal to working people on class interest rather than on, you know, racial interest or something like that, race discrimination or white, uh, white supremacy or something like that. If they were to ever do that and succeed with that, Ooh, there would be hell to pay. And, and they have succeeded in American history. That has, there, there have been instances where that sort of thing appealed and, all my life, I've been waiting for it to work again. <laughs> Talk about the history in the United States. So where there actually was a movement that self-identified as populist, the yes. People's Party. So what is the history of it? Yes. And so this is what, one of the funnier things, Paul, with launching this book is, you know, I got there and put it on Twitter and on Facebook. And there's all of these people who are like, you know, everybody says they've got this model for populism, but nobody knows where, you know, what the, you know, the... It, it's as as though they don't know that there was a well. Of course, they don't know. Nobody knows anymore that there was an original. There were people who made up the word, consciously invented the word, and there was an original populist movement. And it's you know this is for me this is very familiar history because uh, I'm from Kansas. Uh, I'm sitting in Kansas right now as I'm speaking to you, and I'm about twenty miles from this the spot where the word was coined. Okay, and it begins 
in the year 1890. Well, it begins before that. There was a group called the Farmers Alliance that started organizing. Back then, the majority of the U.S. population were farmers. Kansas is a farm state. And the farmers, farmers were in deep trouble, deep economic trouble. And there's a group called the Farmers Alliance started bringing them together and organizing them to act in their own, uh, you know, figuring out ways to do something about their terrible predicament. Uh, This group was enormous, one of the biggest mass movements of all of all time in American history. And um, they uh, they you know, they didn't succeed using the various political methods at hand. And so they went into politics themselves and they started a third party. And it was the last of the great third party efforts and also the most successful of them. And they uh, they were able to take power in the state of Kansas and in a bunch of other places as well. It, it overnight became this sort of prairie fire, this huge movement. This is in the year 1890. And when my story begins, it's 1891. The uh, Kansas populists have just gone to a convention in Cincinnati where they have launched their movement on the uh, you know on the national level and they're on their way back to Topeka and somewhere between Kansas City and Topeka on the train they were sitting around with a local democrat and uh trying to invent a name for a word to describe people who are um you know members uh of the popular of the people's party that's what they called themselves the people's party and uh they came up with the word populist and they it appeared in uh, a newspaper a few days after that and caught fire uh the word caught on and the movement caught on and the movement grew by leaps and bounds over the next few years and uh they ran a guy for president in 1892, didn't succeed, but they won a lot of other offices. They had uh, a delegate, you know, they had a bunch of them in Congress, a bunch of U.S. senators, a lot of governors, mayors, et cetera. Uh, and um, you want me to just keep going with the story or how do you want? <laughs> yeah, yeah, go ahead. The only question I'd ask at this point is in the United States, to some extent, and certainly many other parts of the world, a kind of conscious socialist movement was also developing around this time. Yes. Uh, how influenced was this this populist movement with socialist ideas? Uh, very. So they were, this was, so that, you know, if you want to put aside whatever doctrinal differences they might have had with other uh, left-wing parties at the time, this is the populist party in America was basically the equivalent of the Labour Party in England or in Australia, or, and there were other left-wing parties uh, cropping up around the world. You know, we often, one of the things that historians often talk about is why there is no uh, socialist or democratic socialist party in America. And one of the, the, the reason is because we did have one, it was populism and it, it failed. And we'll get to that part of the story. It failed or, or was suppressed, depending on how you look at it. But yet there was an effort to start one. And it was it was these guys in Kansas and their their grand idea. They wrote a manifesto in 1892. It's really something. It's it's well worth looking up on the Internet and reading. Their grand idea was to bring to build a, 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 a huge a union of all the working uh, working class reform groups. So unions together with farmer groups, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and build a gigantic uh, coalition of the working class to challenge the, uh, uh, well, uh, the capitalist system. That was the idea. And uh, at, for a while in America, it looked like it might succeed. So they, you know, farmers had been having a hard time for 20 years 
for all sorts of different reasons, um, because of you know railroad monopolies, because the currency was contracting, um, you know, all sorts of other reasons, and then the country went into a terrible economic depression. And in 1894 in America, you had uh, one of the first big nationwide strikes, a railroad strike. Uh, you know the, the what called the Pullman strike, led by Eugene Debs. You had a march on Washington of unemployed people. This is the first time that had ever happened. That was it was organized by a populist, and it looked like the the populist party was perfectly situated to uh, take advantage of you know, the depression that the country was going into. How, how large was that march on Washington? I don't remember how many people participated, maybe 10,000, probably less. It wasn't like, it wasn't in terms of numbers. It wasn't like the one in 1963 or the one in the 1930s, but uh, it shocked people. It was in incredibly shocking. They called it Coxie's Army. <laughs> and it was headline news all over the United States and was regarded as as deeply shocking. And they threw the leader of it in jail once he got to Washington for, for walking on the grass. <laughs> Anyhow, you know, this this was a, the 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 people in charge in America at the time. Uh, you got to remember were, you know, it would not be right to call them extreme right wingers because by the standards of their day, they were, uh, they were it. They were the center. They were the left. They were the right. They were the only thing, the only game in town, but by our standards today, they would be, they were extremely conservative. You know, they believed in government having no role in the economy except to prop up banks, to get banks out of trouble. Uh, you know, never helping out unemployed people. The government should intervene to put down strikes, uh, should, you know, intervene to stop, uh, uh, you know, any kind of protest movement that rises up these this this elite that I'm describing who ruled America were incredibly racist. Uh, I mean, that's just how they thought about the world. Uh, they thought there should be no taxation of, of incomes or of fortunes, uh, no regulation of railroads or monopolies. Uh, that's just how they viewed the world. It's kind of it's kind of ironic because the so many of the working people now in Kansas and other parts of rural and suburban America, who who are supporters of Trump or the Republican Party, you know they have this idea of the good old days. <laughs> the, yeah, I know the, the good old days. Their equals were part of this progressive, populist, socialistic movement. That's well, what the good old days was. Well, Paul, one of the <laughs> one of the yes. You're right. One of the, you know, like recurring features of American life that makes everything possible, that makes the whole thing tick, is that we don't remember the past. Well, you know Gore Vidal, you know Gore Vidal's line on that, right? You know, USA, the United States of he changed it to amnesia. Yeah. No, from amnesia he changed it to Alzheimer's. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, who Studs Turco once said that to me, like in, in different different words, but that's that's what he thought was our great problem. We couldn't remember anything. Well, you can thank the education system for that. Uh, yes, but you can also thank the powers that be. I mean, you think you look at the high, most highly educated people in America running the New York Times, and they use the word populist in this, in this negative sense all the time. They have no recollection of it. They hated it then. They hate it today. 
anyhow, let's get to the let's let's the the story. Yeah, keep the, going. Yeah, the story comes to an incredible climax here in just a second, which is this. So the you know, the country is in turmoil. Populism looks like it's the wave of the future. It's the uh, you know it's the coming political party, and then as 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 often happens in American life, one of the two major parties decides to uh, uh, capture this uh, reform sentiment, this protest sentiment that's out there in the country. And in this case, it's it's the Democratic Party. And the Democrats meet for their convention in 1896, and they toss the incumbent president, Grover Cleveland, overboard. They're not going to renominate him, the sitting U.S. president. He's out. And they turn against the gold standard. The gold standard is the great sort of uh, uh, religious faith that props up American capitalism at the time. And they, the, the Democratic Party says, we're, 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 you know, we're going to, if we get in, we're, we're taking the country off of gold. And then they nominate for their presidential candidate, a 36 year old from Nebraska named William Jennings Bryan, who's completely unknown, never heard of, and uh, who has just given this incredible speech attacking the gold standard. And they choose this guy for their presidential nominee. And then a few weeks later, the Populist Party, which has met in its convention, says, okay, we, you know, we're going to, um, Brian's not perfect. He doesn't, you know, we have all these other issues too, everything from women's suffrage to nationalizing the railroads to the eight hour day, you know, all these other issues. And he's, he isn't on those, but we'll, we'll get on board with him because he looks, he looks pretty good and it's probably the best we can hope for. And so they endorsed him also. And uh, when these two things happened, the elite of the United States went crazy. They went into a kind of hysteria and I call it a, a democracy scare. They, uh, you know, the, the, the leading newspapers of the country combined with, uh, the leading, uh, uh, academics of the country, the millionaires, the, uh, captains of industry, all of them joined hands and went hysterical together, hysterical that, that, that this was happening to them, that one of the two major parties had been, as they saw it, captured by radicalism. And they proceeded to denounce William Jennings Bryan in the most outrageous, uh, shocking terms. And uh, I, I have a, a really, in my in my mind, kind of amusing collection of this. It makes up a whole chapter of the book. I call it, the, you know, the democracy scare of 1896. Their war on William Jennings Bryan, which is really quite incredible. This airtight consensus among the American elite that this man had to be stopped. He could not become president. Uh, and they rolled out, you know, every rhetorical device against this guy, every kind of... Uh, election day corruption that was sort of available to the 19th century mind was used against him and they they defeated him and by the way they also it was one of the they raised the republican party raised and spent an extraordinary amount of money uh, by some standards bigger than has ever been spent uh, to this day you got to remember it was unregulated back then there was no regulation and they they uh, the republican candidate was a guy named william mckinley senator from ohio and his his campaign manager was a tycoon from Cleveland called Mark Hanna. Mark Hanna is legendary. Uh, Carl Rove imagines himself as a kind of, you know, in the in the Mark Hanna. He's written a biography of the uh, or a book about this this moment, this election. Carl Rove has anyhow. J J J P Morgan must be at the center of most of this. Uh, n- Hanna was the organizer. I don't remember if Morgan. Uh, I don't. He, he's Morgan like telling. Was, he, 
he's dictating to a large extent yes, to the railroads right, and others. He's creating these monopolies. I, I think Morgan was immediately after this election was his heyday, or it might have been right before, but his heyday was was right after this. But there were, you know, the other tycoons, all the, the railroad, Vanderbilt was in full effect, of course. Uh, you know, the other tycoons, Rockefeller, of course, Standard Oil was up and running. Carnegie was uh, probably the richest man in the world at the time. You know, U.S. Steel called Carnegie Steel at the time. But, um, uh, you know, all of these guys, of course, hated, feared, loathed populism. And uh, uh, Mark Hanna uh, would go actually at one point in the campaign, went door to door to the headquarters of the great American corporations in Manhattan and said, this is just, it's incredible that this happened. He said to them, open the books. And they did. And he said, here's what your profits were last year. We, we, the Republican party, the Republican campaign is taking, you know, whatever percent of those profits. That's what you're giving to this campaign as part of the class war to stop William Jennings, Bryan. And they paid. Uh, they anteed. And here's uh, this is the uh, the kicker of it. The word that they used to describe Brianism, the fear that the danger of Brianism, the one word that they settled upon was populism. It's, uh, this is populism. It is this it's mob rule. It's the danger of the mob. You know, they're, they're going to come and, uh, you know, overthrow the legitimate government. They don't know what they're doing. They're crazy. They are mentally ill. Uh, they are, but you know, they, the whole sort of stereotype that we see nowadays, they want to d destroy norms, uh, the way this country has always been run, but above all, what their idea of populism was, is that it represented people who had no business ruling, who had no business making laws. They must, they must've been particularly concerned. You write in the book in the 1880s that the Farmers Alliance, which was sort of the underpinning yeah, the, of all this. Yeah, the proto-populists, yeah. Yeah, that, that there was also a colored Farmers Alliance that, that was in alliance with yeah. the white Farmers Alliance. That must have really scared the elites. In the South it did, yes. So that's a, that's a sort of a, a related story, but slightly different. Uh, and so populism had, uh, you know, its, its uh, stronghold was, you know, the Plains states, Kansas, Nebraska, Colorado, the Dakotas, where it, it pretty much swept everything before it. But they also were very strong in the South. And uh, the South, obviously, a very poor part of America at the time. Uh, obviously, everyone or the vast majority of the population there are farmers, uh, largely tenant farmers. And uh, populism's, their proposal to the farmers of the South, the South, by the way, was a one-party system. The one party being the Democratic Party, uh, which was the architect of white supremacy. And the way the Democratic Party held power in the South in those days was by appealing to uh, whites, saying that your interest, uh, your racial interest is greater than your class interest, your racial interest. And, you know, they did this in a, in a, in a thousand disgusting, loathsome, racist ways. And it's, it's almost, it's kind of hard to write history about this period because it involves reading really vile uh, stuff. Uh, but th this was what they called the Bourbon Democrats, the people who ran the South, the ruling elite of the South. And populism rose up against these people. And the proposal that populism made to the uh, farmers of the South was that, no, your class interest is greater than your racial interest, your racial interest. And so they populism very famously made an appeal to black farmers as well as white farmers to come together in their common uh, class interest and to do something to you know, improve their position in life. And this was not idle. 
this actually had a chance of succeeding. And yes, that was absolutely terrifying to the masters of the South. Absolutely terrifying. And uh, you mentioned the uh, what, what's now referred to as black the black populists, and they were not insignificant. They made up a big part of the uh, populist vote in Southern states. At the time, uh, African-Americans could still vote in a lot of the Southern states. And so the populace said, we're going to go out there and compete for their votes. And we're going to you know, do, these, do this obvious thing, which is we're going to give them a better deal <laughs> than the Democrats are. And oh my God, the, the story is, is famous, uh, how the Bourbon Democrats reacted, which is to roll out every imaginable kind of racist device to scare the whites back into line. And when that failed, to use every kind of election day skullduggery to count them out, to make sure that populists did not get elected. They, they did prevail in one southern state, that's North Carolina. The story there just is incredibly awful, how, they, how the, the Democrats finally got them back. But they did. So in 1896, you've got this Democratic Party convention. They dump President Grover Cleveland. They nominate William Jennings Bryan. And the elites go nuts. So what happens? They uh, pull out every stop, and they, you know, they outspend Brian in the most. <laughs> we don't really know because there's no, uh, you know, they didn't have to report. There are no reporting, uh, you know, requirements or anything. Probably twenty or thirty to one. Brian had virtually no campaign funding at all because obviously he's <laughs> promising to take the country off the gold standard, which would have ruined you know, the, the banking community and, you know, small town, every, everyone down to small town merchants, you know, would have, would have been in trouble. So they come together as a class to stop him. And, um, he's going around the country. He's kind of a novelty because he's, he's won this, uh, he's won the nomination of the democratic party on the strength of his oratorical ability. And so huge crowds come out to see him. But why, why did this getting off the gold standard so appeal to the populace? Ah, Good question. So this is a, a one of these forgotten little chapters of American history. The the gold standard is what's called deflationary. Uh, it, it because the supply of gold doesn't grow very much every year. But the at the time in the 1890s, the population was growing by leaps and bounds. The economy was growing by leaps and bounds, but the currency was not. And so what that means is that uh, it's deflationary. So uh, the 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 value of the dollar goes up and up and up every year. It's the opposite of inflation. Uh, if you are a, a banker. Uh, or a bondholder or, you know, a capitalist, this is wonderful for you. If you are someone who borrows money, which farmers did at the time and still do today, farmers work on, you know, they're always in debt, right? They have to borrow to uh, make ends meet. Uh, this is crushing. You have to pay off your debts in dollars that are worth far more than they were when you borrowed them. So the price of, of say, corn goes down and down and down and down. Uh, you know, and, and the, uh, uh, but your debts, the, you know, the, the burden goes up and up and up. And so you have farmers in the West and farmers in the South are basically approaching a, a state of debt peonage. I mean, they're, they're in the far, in the South, that's where they are. That's, I mean, that's, that is, that is what has happened. And, uh, so yeah, they, the, getting the country off the gold standard was, uh, you know, a huge part of the problem. And we eventually did do that. You know, we don't have the gold standard anymore. Same is true in Canada, but it became a, uh, the public sort of embraced this issue in a way that is difficult to understand nowadays and said, no, what we should have is a silver standard because silver is inflationary. There's a lot of it, you know, it comes out of the ground every year. 
And so it became what they called the Battle of the Standards, where Bryan supported silver and McKinley supported gold. And so and voters, <laughs> voters actually understood the implications of all this. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Well, they, they did uh, very much so. And they also embraced it in a, in a, in a symbolic way. So gold became, was symbolized by great wealth. Gold was the, supposed to be the currency of the rich and silver was supposed to be the currency of, uh, of, of average people. Yes, they uh, they definitely understood this. Now, at, for a time at the beginning, after the convention, and you know, Brian is is seems to be this man of destiny, and everybody thought he was going to win. It seemed uh, you know obvious. Look what's coming. You know, it's this tidal wave. But the Republicans were with the with the 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 campaign that I describe in the book and the, and the sort of uh, hysteria among the ruling elite of this country were able to, were able to beat him back. I mean, they used every kind of crooked method that you can imagine, uh, <laughs> but they did it, you know, and they, they beat, they beat Brian and staved off the challenge of populism. And the, and the movement kind of fizzled after that, but you write in the book that even if the movement fizzled, Many of their demands actually came true and not that much longer. Go about what kind of changes arose out of that. Oh, well, so the, like the, if, if you look at the, what the populists wanted to do, almost everything on their list later became law um, you know, by, via other politicians and other parties. So, you know, for example, the direct election of senators, they wanted to do that. That happened. The uh, secret ballot you know, you wouldn't think that's that's kind of an obvious reform that happened. The and we have that everywhere now. The initiative and referendum, we have that votes for women, uh, that happened. Populism was the first, you know, of course, party to uh, endorse that. Um, on their economic issues, we did start breaking up monopolies. Uh, it took a couple of years, but we started doing it. We regulated other monopolies like the railroads. We are very strictly regulated in this country. Um, we did go off the gold standard. It didn't happen until 1933, but we did do it. Uh, you know, the, right down the list, almost everything they, they wanted to do eventually, eventually happened. You, you're, you're right that rich people got the income tax. That, that wasn't true before that. The first income tax was passed by populists in U.S. Congress, uh, it working with uh, progressives from the other two parties uh, right before that election. I think 1895, it got struck down immediately by the Supreme Court. Very famous Supreme Court decision. They said this was this was that the income tax was an act of class war, right? This was the uh this was the uh uh the sort of the the worst elements of society voting a tax on their betters. And it you So know, you you're from Kansas. Uh you know you you know and because of the book you've made an, an extra effort to get to know and talk to people of Kansas. Do people understand that the current right-wing politics that so so dominates in Kansas and places like there, that that the history of their own families there is so different that so much of what they condemn, these ideas began yeah. with their ancestors. So, so Paul, this is this is the you know one of the many. I should read a book. What's yeah. the matter with Kansas? I know. Yeah. yeah, I don't know what to say. It's one of the, no, they don't know that. Uh, it's it's that knowledge is is lost. Uh, there's no monuments to populism except for private ones. If you go on eBay, it's incredibly hard to find any kind of ephemera associated with. Them. They didn't have any money. I mean, these were these were very poor people. 
uh, <laughs> there's, there's, there's nothing, but I, I, as you saw in the book, I was, I was able to hunt down all kinds of hilarious ephemera from the campaign against populism. That's very, <laughs> very easy to find. And, you know, you could buy it on eBay and, you know, that sort of thing, but no, it's, there's no, uh, collective consciousness of that. And, you know, this is a, one of the problems in American life is that we don't really the way that we remember the past is so distorted. Now we should probably come back to this in, in episode two or three, the way the word populism got uh, distorted by historians who deliberately decided to twist the word, you know, for their own reasons. And I think the other thing in terms of when this movement started to fizzle out, it's really, you know, the beginning of the 20th century is, is the real rise of finance yeah, and the, the real beginning of financialization. And by the twenties, uh, everybody's being sucked into buying into the stock market and borrowing money to buy stocks. And there's this whole frenzy of speculation. Now, everyone was going to be a wealthy capitalist. Yeah, the, the, eternal, the eternal dream. Yeah, the eternal dream. Well, there's a famous article at the time. What, what, what is it? Oh, my God. Anyone can be a millionaire or everyone can be a millionaire. I'm sorry. I wrote a book about this long ago called One Market Under God about this kind of the, the pseudo populist promise of uh, that kind of capitalism. And every time they it, it just continually they suck all these people in and then and then, you know, pull the rug out from under them, you know. But that when they did that uh, in the in the 20s, it led to a great moment in American life, which is the the rise of the New Deal and the labor movement. And real, real reform. Okay, that's going to be part two. So we're going to end this part of the interview. And part two, we'll, we'll keep going historically for now and deal with what populism looks like in the 1930s and the New Deal. And, and you know, if you read some of the speeches of Roosevelt, particularly this very critical year of 1936, uh, Roosevelt sounds more radical, frankly, than anything you even heard from the populist movement. Oh, yes. All right. So join us for part two with Thomas Frank on the analysis.news podcast. <laughs>